0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huangdi. As the first emperor of China, obviously he is the creator of the first, albeit short-lived, imperial dynasty of China, the Qin Dynasty. Perhaps his most famous claim to fame outside the historical sphere would be his commission of the Terracotta Army to be created in his massive mausoleum. He is also the guy who started up work on the Great Wall of China, so clearly this guy has a massive legacy to his name. However, he was born into a very disjointed China, one which was fractured into many smaller kingdoms referred to as the Warring States. Obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into uniting that sort of area. A lot of work that would go on to support the framework of China for the next couple millennia and some change. There was also this whole weird thing about him searching for a potion of immortality. What I'm trying to say is that there's clearly a lot of story about this guy, some of which you might have heard of. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to China in the 3rd century BCE in... Qin. There can only be one. Though China is a very old nation, it can really only be called a unified nation with the start of the Qin Dynasty. In fact, it's generally considered a fact that the word China comes from the Qin Dynasty via a game of interlingual telephone dating back centuries. Before this point in time, China was made up of several smaller kingdoms. The era before the Qin Dynasty was the Warring States period. However, there was another period before the Warring States referred to as the Spring and Autumn period. Both of these periods happened to align with the supremacy of the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, which consisted of kings, not emperors. Though there was technically a central power within the Kingdom of the Zhou, and the capital of China at this time was first the Zhou's Kingdom of Wangcheng before moving to Chengzhou, power was split up between many lesser rulers across the region during the spring and autumn period named after a chronicle of the same name documenting the time period from 722 to 481 bce the local lords who had previously practiced a form of feudalism began amassing their own sense of power by the way feudalism is a system in which local nobility within a region usually a kingdom almost rent land from the crown that they have power over these local lords then rule over the common people and pitch back some of the local wealth to the monarchy in return for military protection and other benefits. Well, the local nobility in China had had enough of the old system, referred to as Fengjian, and started turning their smaller regions of influence into their own kingdoms. Soon enough, the centralized power of the Zhou started to collapse. This led to the nobles becoming minor kings and warlords who formed alliances with some of their neighbors and went to war with others. One of the smaller kingdoms, referred to as hegemons, during this time was the Qin. It was also during the Spring and Autumn Period where we get such influential figures as Confucius, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, and Sun Tzu, the author of The Art of War. There's no precise end date to the Spring and Autumn Period that era is usually said to start with the Eastern Zhou moving their capital to Wangcheng. Most dates for the ending are within the 400s BCE with the inauguration of certain kings or the formation and partition of different smaller kingdoms. An official end notice heavy air quotes is usually stated as 475 BCE because that's when Sima Qian, an ancient Chinese historian, decided the next era started. Obviously, the Warring States period saw a lot of conflict come about during the couple centuries it spanned. During this time, former fiefdoms and dukedoms under Zhou control, the ones under control of powerful warlords in the Spring and Autumn period, became full-fledged kingdoms in their own rights, further lessening the power of the Eastern Zhou. As with all periods of massive warfare, the Warring States period saw massive developments in many different facets of Chinese culture. Iron-working became much more prevalent as iron weapons replaced the bronze weapons previously used. In addition, the aristocracy began losing power as merit became the key to better positions within the military of each state. Bureaucracy flourished and philosophies developed by the major historical figures of the spring and autumn period soon developed large-scale followings, such as Confucianism and Taoism. During this time, the Qin Kingdom was still a major player, and as the Eastern Zhou Dynasty continued to decline in power, it was only a matter of time before a new group stepped in to take its place as the central power of China. But this time, things would be different. There would be no minor kingdoms with a central ruler. This time, everyone would fall in line under the monarch, and not just a king. But something more. The future first emperor was born as Ying Zheng, also called Zhao Zheng, in 259 BCE in the kingdom of Zhao. That's right, in Zhao, not Qin. According to Sima Qian, that same historian whose arbitrary date is chosen for the transition of the spring and autumn period into the warring states period, Ying Zhang's father was Prince Yi Ren of the Qin Kingdom. He was also held as hostage in the Zhao Kingdom in order to ensure peace between the Qin and the Zhao. During this time, Yiren fell in love with a concubine who was in the service of a rich merchant from the Kingdom of Wei. The merchant allowed his concubine, then named Zhao Ji, to marry the prince. Not long afterwards, Ying Zhang was born. However, later sources would insist that Prince Yu Ren was not actually the future emperor's father. According to sources from the Han Dynasty, the dynasty following that of Qin, the first emperor's father was actually the Wei merchant, named Lu Bu Wei, who had given Zhaoji to Prince Yi Ren, therefore making Ying Zhen an illegitimate child of the Qin state. This story is usually believed to have been spread to discredit the Qin Dynasty and help bolster the legitimacy of the Han Dynasty, but it's still possibly true. Not that it'll matter in the long run. During Zheng's childhood, Lu Bu Wei became a close confidant of Prince Yi Ren and helped get the prince into a position of power in order to become the king of Qin. However, after only three years, Prince Yiren, then known as King Zhuangxian of Qin, passed away in 246 BCE. This left 13-year-old Ying Zheng as the new king of Qin. Since he was just a teenager, Liu Buwei stepped in to act as the regent. Now this is where any sort of rumors about Zheng's parentage become a bit spicier. Because during this time, Lu Bu Wei and Zhao Ji either started up or continued on with an affair. However, after a little bit, Lu Bu Wei, perhaps out of a sense of loyalty to the now teenaged king he was acting as regent towards, decided it was probably best to end this affair, unless he would suffer any sort of punishment. Lady Zhao was not happy with this and demanded that Lu Bu Wei continue on with their relationship or find a suitable replacement to fulfill the queen dowager's needs. Lu Bu Wei found his replacement in a man named Lao Ai. Lao was said to be well versed in sexual situations and was perfect for the queen. However, as the queen was not supposed to be having any relationships due to her husband being dead, not that this had stopped her and Lu Bu Wei, Lao was to shave his hair and pretend to be a eunuch. Some historians say that the pair had children together. As Lao Ai amassed power, he started thinking it was only right that his children with Lady Zhao should be seated on the throne of Qin, not Ying Zheng. In 238 BCE, while the young king was away from his capital city of Yong, Lao Ai staged a coup. Word reached Ying Zheng and he had Lu Buwei raise an army in response. Though the King's army was successful in taking down Lao Ai's army, the usurper initially managed to get away. After raising a significant bounty on Lao's head, the traitor was eventually found. Lao and the rest of his family were killed, including his children with Lady Zhao. When the King found out about the relationship between Lao and his mother, he had the Queen Dowager put on house arrest, where she was held until her death a decade later. Three years later in 235 BCE, Ying Zheng found out about Lu Bu Wei's relationship with Lady Zhao. The king had his regent banished. Shortly afterwards, Lu Bu Wei took his own life by drinking poison. With all the adults out of the way, still just a young man, Ying Zheng was able to take his proper place as the king of Qin. As a king during the Warring States period, it was Ying Zheng's sole purpose in life to see his enemies defeated and to unify all of China under his rule. Before Ying Zheng was king, the Qin state had managed to make gains in the Warring States period by conquering some of the smaller kingdoms to their south in the Sichuan Basin. And yes that's the same Sichuan as the type of food in that one McDonald's sauce Rick and Morty fans rioted over. By the time Zheng ascended to the throne, his kingdom was in a fantastic place to start conquering its enemies. They were the largest and most powerful of the remaining Chinese states. The first kingdom to fall to Ying Zheng's military was the Kingdom of Han, which actually has nothing to do with the future Han Dynasty. Han was the smallest of the major players in China and had a history of being invaded by its neighbors considering it was centrally located among the much larger states. Usually, other kingdoms would come to the aid of Han in order to stop their neighbors from growing more powerful. That had been back during the game of Will They, Won't They that had been the past couple centuries of the Warring States period. Ying Zheng was operating a different kind of war. In 230 BCE, he entered a weakened kingdom of Han and conquered it within the same year. After Han, Ying Zheng turned his attention to his northeastern neighbor, the Kingdom of Zhao. Remember, his father had been a political hostage in Zhao and the future king was also born there. As a political outsider, Ying Zheng had been treated horribly in his childhood, so I'm sure it was with great pride and pleasure that he turned his army north. The Kingdom of Zhao had been weakened in previous decades with wars against the Qin state. Their most devastating recent loss had actually come when Zhao tried to protect the Han Kingdom from Qin. Uh, by the way, this was a different invasion from the Wang Ying Zheng led. In 229 BCE, the Zhao Kingdom was hit by an earthquake and then suffered a severe famine. Ying Zheng took advantage of the weakened Zhao to launch his campaign. Things started off pretty well before a stalemate was eventually reached. The Zhao military commander was too good at defense. Ying Zhang then ordered some of his spies to sow discord between the Zhao king and his military commander. This strategy surprisingly worked. The king began to doubt his military commander's loyalties. When he ordered the Zhao commander to relinquish his power, the commander refused, so the king of Zhao had him killed. With weaker leaders in charge of the military, The Qin forces were once more able to push forward and capture the Zhao capital of Handan. The kingdom of Zhao fell to the Qin in 228 BCE. Very soon after the conquest of Zhao, the neighboring state of Yan became the next target for the Qin army. This all began when the prince of Yan defied his father and hired an assassin to kill the king of Qin, who we'll get into that assassination attempt later. Spoiler alert, it failed. Using the attempt against his life as a declaration of war, Ying Zheng ordered his army to invade Yan. By 226 BCE, the Qin forces had conquered much of the kingdom, but the King of Yan managed to retreat to safety. In order to put a pause to the fighting, the King of Yan ordered for the execution of his son, the prince who had hired the assassin, and had his head sent to Ying Zheng as an apology. This worked to stop the fighting. For about three years until the King of Qin invaded the remaining Yan territory and took it in 222 BCE. Also in 226 BCE, Ying Zheng sought to conquer his southeastern neighbor, the Kingdom of Chu. Initially, the Qin army was supposed to be led by a man named Wang Jian. However, Wang wanted to lead an army of 600,000 soldiers into Chu in order to capture the kingdom. The king of Qin thought that number was far too high, and instead gave command of his army to a general named Li Xin, who instead suggested only needing 200,000 soldiers. This caused Wang Jian to temporarily retire. Well, it turned out that 200,000 was not enough people to conquer Chu, as Li Xin found out the hard way. Defeated but not killed, Li Xin returned to Qin. Ying Zheng decided to once more turn to Wang Jian and gave the general his 600,000 soldiers. In order to keep his relationship strong with the king, 600,000 soldiers is a lot of people after all, enough to conquer a nation if you really wanted to, General Wang relayed constant messages to the king of Qin documenting his conquest. In 223 BCE, Wang's army had captured Chu. In 225 BCE, Ying Zhang gave command of an army to Wang Jian's son, Wang Ben, in order to conquer the smaller kingdom of Wei. Oddly enough, he gave Wang Ben a 600,000 soldier army right away. This was before Li Xin had failed to conquer Chu. During this conquest mission, Wang Ben came up with an absolutely ridiculous idea. First, he needed to lay siege to the Wei capital of Daliang, easy enough, done. Next, they needed to redirect the flow of the Yellow River. Not as easily done. It took a chunk of his forces nearly three months to redirect the river. Daliang, under normal circumstances, was defensively located in a moat near a couple rivers. Well, when the Yellow River was redirected, it ended up flooding the entire city. It's said that nearly 100,000 people lost their lives. With that heavy loss, Wei surrendered to Qin. That only left the kingdom of Qi. General Li Xin was given a second chance for victory in 221 BCE. Qi was already a pretty weak kingdom. In the previous years, Qin had managed to bribe a Qi Chancellor to advise against going to war with Qin while the massive powerhouse went about conquering all of its neighbors. Now, they were the only independent kingdom left outside of Qin. Li Xin led an army into Qi without much resistance. By the time he had the Qi capital surrounded, that same chancellor Qin had bribed earlier advised his king that it was within Qi's best interest to just surrender to the much more powerful kingdom. So not with a bang but with a… well, this might as well happen. In 221 BCE, Ying Zheng and the kingdom of Qin had conquered their neighbors and brought an end to the Warring States period. It was time for a new era to begin. As the leader of a new united nation, Ying Zheng decided he would create his own title to fit that grand honor. From henceforth, he would be called Qin Shi Huangdi. So let's dissect that name so you know why he chose it. First, Qin. Pretty obvious, that's his homeland. Let's skip over Shi for a second. Huangdi is actually a compound word combining two names of titles used to refer to the three sovereigns and five emperors, a group of divine ancestral spirits who were said to be mythological rulers of prehistoric China. Huang means shining and Di was used to refer to a god of the Shang dynasty, a dynasty that ruled before the Eastern Zhou. Now returning to Shi, that just means first, it was Ying Zhang's hopes that his successors would continue this naming convention moving forward, so his successor would be the second Huangdi, then third Huangdi, and so on. Unfortunately, this convention would only last through his son and immediate successor, Qin Er Huangdi as a compound word is usually just translated into Emperor, even if the actual title has a different meaning. So, Qin Shi Huangdi actually means, as usually translated, the first emperor of Qin. And with that out of the way, I'll now just be referring to him as Shi Huangdi for the most part going forward. The emperor quickly set out to make sure his rule was secured across his new empire. He standardized the spoken language, trade routes, and the currency used throughout the former warring states. Additionally, he decided to create a symbol of his rule, the Heirloom Seal of the Realm. The seal was created out of the Heshebi, a piece of jade that was said to be sacred and was a symbol of divine rule. The Qin had taken the Heshebi from the Zhou after its conquest of the kingdom. Shi Huangdi ordered for the Heshebi to be carved into a bee, a round disc with a hole in the center. When he was presented with the new seal by his chancellor, Li Si, he was given the Mandate of Heaven, proclaiming Qin the rightful rulers of the realm. Li Si would be one of Shi Huangdi's most important allies during this time as he helped the new emperor standardize Qin rule across China. Alongside his chancellor, Shi Huangdi divided his new empire into 40 commanderies administrative regions. They also created a unified system of weight and length measurements that could be used throughout the entirety of the empire. However, with unification came the enforcement of certain schools of thought in order to suppress uprisings from the newer citizens of Qin. Schools of philosophy like Confucianism were outlawed, and soon enough, Li Si advised that the emperor order certain books to also be banned and burned. According to Sima Qian, in 212 BCE, Shi Huangdi had around 460 scholars buried alive for possession of books his administration had deemed illegal. Li Si was a staunch follower of the legalism school of philosophy. In a nutshell, legalism, at least the form Li Si followed, views humanity as inherently selfish. In order to make a society work, a very strong authoritative hand is needed to guide the public. In order to secure public morality, reward and punishment are dealt as needed in order to keep the people on the right path. It was not too long until legalism became the guiding philosophy of the Qin Dynasty. Though this method of authoritarianism was a bit austere, it did help secure the power of the new empire during Qin Shi Huangdi's life. However, even from before he received the Mandate of Heaven, not everyone was on board with the Emperor's new China. So let's learn about a bunch of people who wanted his reign to come to a violent end. Okay, obviously Shi Huangdi had been king during the Warring States period. All the other kings wanted him dead. Let's briefly start with his neighbors after becoming emperor. Xi Huangdi's first external military campaign as emperor was against the Xiangnu nomadic people. The Xiongnu lived in the Eurasian steppe, an area covering southern Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, among several other nations. During the Warring States period, the Xiongnu had proved to be a nuisance, though never a major factor for the northern and western kingdoms, which meant Qin had been on and off fighting them for a while. In 220 BCE, the Xiongnu began to form a single united front as a new empire rising from the Eurasian steppe. They soon started encroaching into the Ordos Basin, a region marked by a large bend in the Yellow River, aka very much within the Qian Empire. In 215 BCE, Shi Huangdi put a general named Meng Qian in charge of expelling the Xiongnu army and people. The army managed to push the Xiongnu north a distance of 1000 Li, a li being a unit of length equal to about 576 meters. With this army now further north, it only made sense that the Qin state would want a way to prevent further attacks from the Xiongnu and other nomadic tribes living north of their border. During the Warring States period, the Northern Kingdoms had all built smaller fortifications along their borders to keep out both nomadic tribes and neighboring kingdoms. With General Meng's victory, Huangdi ordered for these smaller walls to be joined together. Together they created a very long northern wall. A Great Wall, if you will. Yes, this was the beginning of the Great Wall of China. Though the wall would not be completed until centuries later, after many dynasties rose and fell, it all started with Qin. But let's now talk about assassins. The first assassination attempt on Shi Huangdi's life was during the Warring States period, right after Qin had conquered the Kingdom of Zhao. A prince from the Kingdom of Yan was worried about Qin's position and hired a man named Jing Kei to kill the King of Qin before things could go further. Jinkei was from the minor kingdom of Wei, a different Wei from the previously mentioned Wei that had been conquered by the Qin back in 239 BCE. Jing Kei was a proficient swordsman and had been brought to the prince by another warrior named Tian Guang. The prince of Yan's plan for Qin was not actually to kill King Ying Zheng, that was a last resort move. He wanted Jing Kei to either kidnap the king or force him to let go of lands that had at that point been conquered by Qin. In 227 BCE, Jing Kei and another man named Qin Wu Yang set out for the Qin capital with a map of a region in Yan as well as the severed head of a man named Fan Wu Ji, a man who may have been a former Qin soldier who turned to the Yan and then offered his own head for the assassination attempt. The two men arrived at the king's palace, who was more than happy to welcome the men, acting as foreign diplomats, who were there bringing gifts. Qin wu Yang was supposed to present the king with the map, which was secretly concealing a dagger. However, the other assassin, for some reason or another, was terrified to move closer to the king. Jun-Kei took it upon himself to present both gifts to the king. When the King of Qin unfurled the map, Jing Kei grabbed the hidden dagger and attempted to stab the king. Unfortunately, he missed. Since none of Ying Zheng's people were allowed to have weapons in his palace, a major oversight on his part, it was up to the king alone to defend himself. After another failed stab, the king managed to slice open Jing Kei's thigh. As a last resort, Jing Kei threw his dagger and missed yet again. I'm beginning to think he's not actually as great of a swordsman as people tried to make him out to be, but then again, this was a very weird situation. Ying Zhang then stabbed Jing Ke over and over with his own sword. Qin Wu Yang was captured as he tried to run away and he was killed shortly after. Soon afterwards, there was a second attempt on the king's life. Gao Jianli was a friend of Jing Kei's who was furious over his friend's death. Gao was a famous Zhu player, a Zhu being a stringed instrument like a lute. He managed to get an invitation to the king of Qin's palace to play for the future emperor. Someone in the palace recognized Gao as Jing Ke's friend and told the king. Instead of having him outright killed, the king ordered for Gao to be blinded. After this, he was still forced to play for the king. After several songs, the king who had let his guard down invited Gao closer, which means that he still had to be pretty good despite not being able to see anything at all. Gao was finally able to take his chance despite now being blind. He had weighed his Zhu with lead and swung at the king, only to miss his blow. Sure enough, Gao Jianli was then taken as prisoner and executed. Let's fast forward to 218 BCE, a former statesman of the Kingdom of Han was finally putting the finishing touches on a grand revenge plot against Shi Huangdi. He had ordered for a massive metal cone to be built that weighed almost 100 kilograms, around 160 pounds. He then hired two strong assassins to bring it up to the top of a mountain that would overlook a path where the emperor was set to be traveling. The Emperor's caravan was driving down the road when the two men threw the metal cone off the mountain. It crushed the first carriage in the caravan, the one the men presumed to be the Emperor's. They ran away sure they had succeeded. They were never caught. However, Shi Di had two identical carriages he traveled with for basically this exact situation. The one the assassins had destroyed had been a decoy. Shen Shi Huangdi would live on, but even the greatest of rulers must one day fall. As the emperor grew older, he began worrying about his own mortality. He began a desperate search for an alleged elixir of life that would prevent him from dying. He ordered a Taoist alchemist named Shufu on two separate journeys to search for this elixir. In 219 BCE, Shufu was sent on a voyage in search of the mystical Pangalai mountain, a location said to be home to immortals. For some reason, this voyage needed to include hundreds, some say thousands, of young virgin men and women. Needless to say, the voyage failed to find the mythical location. When he returned, the Emperor angrily questioned the alchemist about why he had failed. Shu Fu told a story about a massive sea monster that had stopped his voyage and asked the Emperor to send archers to dispatch it. A little while later, the Emperor's archers came back having killed a massive fish of some kind. Now with allegedly no other obstacles, Shu Fu was sent back out to look for the elixir of life. He never returned from this second voyage. No one knows if he died looking for the elixir or if he just stopped looking after a while and went into hiding. Some stories say Fu's second voyage led him to Japan, where he decided he would spend the rest of his life. These stories say he also originally named Mount Fuji after Mount Panglai. Shi Huangdi's quest for eternal life never ended, but unfortunately also never came through. In the summer of 210 BCE, the first emperor of China passed away. His cause of death is unknown, though he had been sick before passing away. Some theorize that he had actually been poisoning himself over time by ingesting medicine containing mercury, which he hoped could help out with his quest for immortality. He had ruled as emperor for 11 years and ruler of Qin for 37. He was buried in his grand mausoleum near the city of Xi'an, which was near the Qin capital of Xianyang. There are many dates thrown around for how long it took to build the mausoleum for Qin Shi Huangdi. Some stories say he ordered for it to be built starting soon after he became king and it was not finished until shortly after his death. Others say it was a much shorter period of time. After the rise of the Han Dynasty, a few years later, the mausoleum was plundered, where they found the bodies of craftsmen from all over the United Empire, meaning it was definitely being worked on and probably started after Shi Huangdi had conquered the neighboring kingdoms. Of course, though, you can't talk about Shi Huangdi's tomb without talking about the Terracotta Army. It's an army of several thousand, anywhere between 6 to 8000 statues made out of clay ceramic. They were said to be built to help guard the emperor in his afterlife. Oddly enough, though, we didn't know about the terracotta army until very recently. Sima Qian, who had written about the Han dynasty's excavations in the mausoleum, never made mention of the statues. It was not until 1974 when a group of farmers living in the general area stumbled upon the site while digging a well. There had been stories for years by that point of discoveries said to be linked to the first emperor's tomb, but it was only now that this grand discovery had been found. Today both the mausoleum and the terracotta army are world heritage sites. Though he himself never became immortal, the wonders of Qin Shi Huangdi's empire still survive today to delight and astound the entire world. Shortly after Shi Huangdi's death, his son, Ying Hu Hai, was crowned as the next emperor, taking the name Qin Er Shi. Hu Hai was chosen because the first emperor's closest confidants, Chancellor Li Si and Chief Eunuch Zhao Gao, agreed that he would be easy to manipulate. And while he was, Qin Er actually proved to be a fairly chaotic emperor, ordering for the deaths of many, including messengers who brought him bad news. It did not take long before the rest of his nation revolted. After suffering a very severe defeat, Zhao Gao convinced the young emperor to commit suicide at the age of 22. Shortly after his death, the Qin Dynasty collapsed around 207 BCE. For several years, warlords attempted to rule what had once been a united empire. It would not be until 202 BCE that Liu Bang crowned himself as the first emperor of Han. And though Qin Shi Huangdi's dynasty was short-lived, it was the bedrock on which all future dynasties would look to when ruling. Though he died looking for immortality, his name lives on. His nation's name would go on to become the name used all around the world to refer to China. The Great Wall of China was his idea. The Terracotta Army is awe-inspiring. Yes, he is dead, but Qin Shi Huangdi lives on immortally as China's first emperor. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're back in Rome to conclude the story of Emperor Gaius Germanicus, aka Caligula. How does a man as wild as him meet his end? And what becomes of Rome after that? Well, you'll just have to tune in and find out.